0: Love Talk Radio Good evening, this is Dr. Simon and my show is called The Stories We Live By and tonight I want to talk about death and dying well actually not death and dying but living in the face of death and dying and what my role is as a psychologist in three nursing homes that I've been working at uh, for the last, it's over three years now. Uh, very profound experiences for a variety of reasons that I want to discuss. Um, very meaningful to me. Um, I think I've said this before, I could never have done this when I was younger uh, for a variety of reasons which happily no longer exist. Um, stories about death and dying knowing you're going to die now we all know we're going to die even young children have a sense early on when a grandparent dies or a pet dies that death uh, is, is something uh, that relates to them and their lives but the moment we come old enough to understand that our life will someday be over we're no we're going to die the interesting thing is we say we know we're going to die but on an emotional level we don't know we're going to die at my age I'm 74 and I'm a post cancer survivor I know I'm going to die um, I fully sense my own mortality And it's not that I am either ready to die or that uh, I am facing imminent death. I am relatively healthy uh, for a man my age. Uh, I exercise regularly. This week I walked four miles twice. I took a long bike ride and I did about 11 miles in just a tad over an hour. Um, I played golf a couple of times. So it's not that uh, I feel... Uh, the uh, breath of death uh, lurking on me, but I know that I'm in the final phase of my life. And that knowledge, not as an intellectual, but as an emotional reality, uh, has made me feel very, very different and see my life very, very different than when it was, well, someday I'm going to die. Um, The patients I all work with are in the final phases of their life, and in most cases, much closer to their end uh, than I possibly am at this moment. I say possibly because I drove home today in a a thunderstorm, which in Florida is like driving through a car wash uh, on roads that become very, very flooded, a really scary half hour until I suddenly come out of the storm it's always the weirdest thing down here you can see the storm up ahead it looks like all of a sudden everything is gray about a half a mile up on the road and then you enter it and then as you get out of it all of a sudden there's no rain anymore and there you are possibly with blue sky um nothing like that ever happened at, up north but down here this is the the, the regular weather in what's called the wet seasons So my patients um, are given to me because they are diagnosed as depressed. And anybody who's followed my show knows how I feel about these diagnoses. Uh, Somebody who's lying in a bed, often in pain, um, whose diapers need to be changed because they can no longer get off the bed and potty themselves, and they can wait two, three hours before some Uh, individual uh, deigns to come and take care of them and by the way I shouldn't sound as if uh, I I am angry at the people who work in these places they are overworked they're underpaid Um, if they could find a more meaningful or better job most of them would not be there that's not means that all of them wouldn't be there because there are some who do their job not only diligently but are the most loving, kind individuals to, their, uh, to the people, you know, the residents, the patients the, uh, that one can ever imagine. Oh, I forgot to send out to my Facebook and all of that stuff. Anyway, uh, it doesn't matter. Um, so I am asked to go in and, and work with them. And I want to describe some of that work and why it's so meaningful to me uh, now that I am in the full recognition that my own life is in, somehow in its final phase. Final, not because I know the date, but because I feel in, in, in a totally different way about uh, how to live and, and uh, what to do with the time that is uh, uh, left me. What do I do with these individuals who are often in such misery and such fear um, of all kinds of things, loneliness, terrible loneliness? And what I've discovered is that the job in many ways is now easy for me because I don't see a difference between me and them. Most of the people who were working in these nursing homes have a tremendous emotional problem relating to the patients because they would then have to recognize in themselves that they, while they probably have a much longer time to live, are in the final phase of their lives too. We are all in the final phase of life. And I wish I had known this on a gut level, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, I think my life would have been a much calmer and happier one that I wasn't chasing the demons of fame and fortune and lamenting so much about my failures that I worked in a community college and not at Harvard, that I didn't have a rich and vibrant private practice, uh, but rather a small one that came and went. Uh, and, and spent so much of my time in a clinic uh, in Queens uh, feeling as if uh, this wasn't noble enough for me. Even though throughout all of these activities, I came to love doing therapy, uh, made many friends, and loved teaching beyond anything else I did, uh, and really wish Um, I could somehow go back and start again, and this time enjoy my teaching uh, much more than I actually did, because of the pursuits that I had for promotion, for recognition. Um, I wrote five books, and I loved every moment of writing them, because I was in them, I was in the moment. Uh, But always in the back of my mind was, will they bring me fame? Will they bring me fortune? And every time one of those thoughts comes, as I said in one of my earlier shows, I stopped playing and started working. And and the joy of creation, the joy of being in the moment and creating, disappeared. So now I can relate to these individuals. Um, Feel sorry for them but not pity them, Um, and what can I do for them? And what I have discovered is that when I sit with one of these individuals and give up the idea that I'm diagnosing them, give up the idea that I'm curing them of something, that this is treatment, even though I still have to fill out all the necessary forms with diagnosis, I have to keep my job and I wanna be paid uh, for my services, uh, I, I see no conflict with that, but to sit with another human being and think of them as defective, which is what these terrible, stupid psychiatric labels define people as uh, as defective and being need to be fixed, um, that doesn't exist in my head anymore. I fill out the papers at the end of the session. I hand in my billing uh, with the proper codes. Uh, And I feel bad that I have to do that, Um, but I choose to do it because otherwise I couldn't have the benefits of working with so many really wonderful people who are uh, teaching me so much. What is it that I can offer these individuals? And what is remarkable to me is that what I'm learning about myself, I learn about the people I'm working with and they teach me. Uh, is very similar, and very similar to ideas that I've been writing about and speaking about on my radio show here uh, on Blog Talk Radio um, uh, that now make sense to me um, more than ever. Because when I sit with these individuals and make a real emotional connection with them, when I listen to them, when I hear their complaints, sometimes bitter and sometimes angry, and I do this without judgment because I can understand if I were in their bed, in their diapers, uh, in their neglect and in their loneliness, uh, I would wonder if I can hold myself together as well as most of them do. Um, But when they're heard, Suddenly, there is a feeling, and they tell me this, that they matter. That somebody cares. That at that moment, because of that feeling, they no longer merely exist as an object. Because they are so objectified with the diagnoses and by the people who tend to their bodies sometimes with love and sometimes more often with disgust and with a terrible sense of of bitter duty, Um, that makes them feel that they're living as a person. I had a woman today I worked with for some time, 102 years old, loveliest person, Um, and I'm convinced that one of the reasons she is 102 is that she lives with an attitude uh, that I still can't match uh, and, and certainly when I was younger never did. And that is she somehow sees what she has rather than what she doesn't have. So for example, she says to me, she's blind in one eye, but that's okay. Could be worse. She could be blind in both eyes. And so as long as she can still see, things are much better than they would be were she not be able to see fabulous but she says to me as i hold her hand and she holds mine and we look at each other in the eyes that she feels like a person and after talking to me for 20 minutes 25 minutes because i don't see anybody really much longer than that my schedule won't allow it um it lasts for two or three days the feeling of that she's important uh, that she's alive And I can tell her honestly that that 20 minutes makes me feel important and makes me feel more alive because I have no place to go and she has no place to go. We are just being two people together. Um, What else can I offer these individuals? Well, many of the sufferings of, of my patients have to do with unmet needs from the past, uh, laments, guilts, shames, and sorrows over past behavior. So, uh, uh, an individual tells me uh, how he is now suffering because of punishment by God, uh, because of how he uh, cheated on his wife. And I listen to this. And it seems he feels better simply because he said it. Now, I don't give absolution, and I don't say, you're forgiven. I am not a priest who holds the keys to uh, the kingdom of heaven. But the very fact that he unloads this stuff, and then he went on to talk about how he always loved his wife, but he didn't see her uh, as a partner in bed, uh, that he found from women he didn't love. And if he were my patient uh, 30 years ago, and we were both much younger, I would have uh, thought through a psychoanalytic uh, uh, process of trying to help him really understand why he married someone this way and, and what does it relate to in terms of his mother. And, and he then said to me, but she suffered all these times. And I said, how do you know she suffered? How do you know? What was she doing while you were elsewhere? And it was as if I had picked up a a, a bottle or a can and whacked them on the head. He says, what do you mean? I said, did she ever complain? Did she ever fight with you? Did she ever argue? What was she doing? He says, my God, I don't know. I never thought of it that way. And what he realized and what we discussed is that he was so wrapped in his own feelings, his own needs to, to uh, satisfy his sexual desires uh, and to avoid the guilt he felt about what he was doing in relation to her, that he didn't think about her. Oh yes, now he lamented how much he might have hurt her, but the fact is he didn't know whether he had hurt her or not. And this was stunning for both of us. It was wonderful for both of us. And he said, my God, maybe I should ask her. But then I would have to admit to her what I had done. And I suggested, do you really think she doesn't know? I've met your wife several times. There is nothing unintelligent about that woman. She's very sharp, very insightful. And the conversation went on this way for a while. And the look of his face and the look of his demeanor, he says, I now have to think about this. I have to think carefully about this. Now, I've never asked. I didn't raise the issue again. He hasn't. But what's so interesting is that that moment, he was in a totally different place. He was back in life. It was something related to the past, that still exists very dramatically in the present and he was working on a critical issue for himself and for his wife who I have no doubt he does love or needs Uh, very often the the difference between need and love is very difficult to to, uh, ascertain needs her, yes he does but I think he does love her because there is a genuine uh, sorrow a genuine guilt, a genuine remorse over the fact that he wasn't the kind of husband that he felt he should have been. Uh, uh, And and it's in relation to his concern that she must have suffered. Whether or not she suffered or whether or not she was doing in her life uh, what was necessary for her to do to get by for all of these years, uh, we don't know. But it changed the perspective, Uh, and good therapy does that. Good therapy involves a meeting of minds and the asking of questions uh, out of concern, out of uh, uh, empathy, um, and flips the person or allows them to walk through a door into another place that's more human, more comfortable, uh, with 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 more life struggle involved, more creative effort to think through and solve a problem uh, that feels vital and real to the person who who is living it. One more individual case, uh, and I think you know I'm going to leave this fairly short tonight. Uh, my wife is home tonight and. Uh, She's watching a TV show that I normally don't like, but we will spend the rest of the evening. I'll make a cup of tea and have a piece of cake. Not on my diet, but to hell with it. Uh, And uh, we'll pass the evening and watch some nice shows. Um, Woman who, uh, very depressed, Um, she uh, had broken her hip. Uh, She had fallen down and fractured her hip. Uh, her surgery was successful, um, but she was very, very anxious about why she had fallen uh, and she lived alone. And she said uh, until she broke the hip and realized that uh, her balance was not what it used to be, she has some kind of low blood pressure, uh, probably related to her diabetes, and as I'll speak about in a second, her dialysis. Um, and, and she, she um, uh, until that moment, uh, would go out to the swimming pool uh, and meet with friends uh, and spend her afternoons. Uh, and her life was pleasant. If it was not fully what she would have wished it to be, it was life, not existence, not a passing of passive time, but an engagement in her own life, with enough pleasure in it and enough uh, creative concerns. Uh, that she wanted to continue living it. Now, this individual um, had never really raised the issue. I had asked, but she never really answered it. Uh, Her dialysis was a kind of a matter of fact. It had been several years since her kidneys went bad uh, because of the diabetes. Uh, And uh, I had left for a week on vacation. When I came back, I found out that she was in the hospital because she had fallen again. This time she had re-injured the hip, but not seriously. She did not need surgery, and another week or two of extra rehabilitation, and she'd be able to go home. Only now she was really very anxious and very depressed, and now I felt a kind of a, a, a real fear in her. I said, "Are you afraid of falling again?" And she said, "Yes." I said, "Do you think you may have fallen on purpose?" And she said, "You know, I think maybe I have." I did. I'm not sure, but I think I did. I'm afraid to leave here. I'm afraid to go home. I'm afraid to be alone. Loneliness is a terrible thing, particularly if it's paired with disability and the fear that if you're hurt, there really is nobody there for you, Uh, at least nobody who really cares, who has concerns. Uh, and, And so many of the people I work with uh, either have no family or the family is dead or the family lives far away. And, and um, a disability paired with loneliness uh, um, produces uh, a real sense of hopelessness, of, of fear, anxiety, shame in many cases, uh, and, and terrible, deep, deep isolation and loneliness. So I said, what would you like to do? And she looked at me, and I said, tell me about how you feel at this point about dialysis. Now, I'll tell you why I asked the question. For many years, as I mentioned in an earlier broadcast, I worked at the Flushing Hospital Mental Health Clinic. And for a number of years, I don't remember how many, but it was a good number, I did a support group with the nurses on the dialysis unit These were the front-line people to treat people, all of whom are terminal. And I learned during that period that about 60% or so, within two or three years, decide it's enough, that it's unbearable, being hooked up to a machine three times a week for five or six hours at a time and having to watch their diet and intake of fluid Uh, and everything that passes through their lips, Uh, and to be so constantly aware and made aware of how connected you are psychologically, and in this case physically, to the medical profession, uh, who, if you're lucky, and often these people were very lucky that they had nurses who really cared, uh, were indifferent to you. It's a process. It's like many of the ways I see the nursing home as a kind of an end-of-life meatpacking plant. It processes people. Um, It makes attempts to give them life, but it really processes them. And most of the people who work there uh, are there for a variety of reasons, but they have to block their own emotional feelings that they, too, could be there, that they, too... Uh, have to make the most of their lives, because like all of us, all of us, we are at our own end of life. At any moment, it could happen. And when we block ourselves off from that thought, we block ourselves off from the people who are sick, people who are distressed, uh, people who are elderly, we see them in a different light. Uh, We think of them as senile. We think of them, again, as being uh, sick and demented. Um, And far fewer people actually do have dementia. I've discovered, since I'm working in these uh, uh, nursing homes, so much of this is withdrawal and defense mechanisms against the terribleness of being at end of life, not facing it yourself, feeling not like a person because you're not connected. You don't feel creative. You don't feel productive. Uh, you're resented uh, at any given moment, deeply resented and disliked for what you bring as a burden to the people who are taking care of you. So I said to her, what are your choices? What would you like? He said, at that point, I can't stand the idea of any more dialysis. So I said, well, do you have a choice about it? And this is like, again, I had hit her. Like she was thunderstruck. Can I make that decision? And here I come to what I feel is so critical in living our lives. And I've spoken about so many times in so many different ways and different words than now. There has to be, to me, a feeling not only that we're creative, but that our lives are our own. We can give them up. We can end them. You know, we can be heroes and run into buildings, we could sacrifice ourselves for our children or our family, but the feeling has to be without resentment because we're doing it because it is our life and that we want to live it and take responsibility for our choices and be able to take responsibility for our choices, to be full existential human beings. And not puppets on a string, not living our life because God wants it, because we've been told our role in life because of sex, because of gender, because of religion, race, color, dooms us to a place in which we'll be threatened to have our lives taken from us if we take our own lives in our hands. And she thought about it, and we had one of the most wonderful discussions I've ever had with any human being, because it was real. We thought three things. She said, well, I don't really want to die at this moment, or at least I don't want to if I choose not to. And that, she said with real clarity. And she said, but I realize now I can at any given moment stop dialysis she said what will happen to me i said well it's simple stop dialysis the social worker here will arrange for hospice for you just two weeks earlier a man i had met just twice who, with whom i could have been best friends earlier in life and i already lament the fact that i will never see him again because at this moment he probably has passed away um had kidney failure had many other illnesses, had suffered terribly in many ways, and he had decided that this was it. He didn't want to die. He was a musician. Uh, He loved life. He still loved music. He couldn't play anymore because when he was given a, uh, uh, a test for his heart, somebody had punctured a nerve in his arm, making one of his hands useless so that he couldn't play his instrument anymore. He was a piano player, apparently fairly well known. But he decided this, and nobody fought with him. They recognized that his decision, they recognized that he's a rational human being, and you cannot, at least in our good country, force a person and tie them down to a treatment that goes on for years, that causes all kinds of psychological, and in many cases, physical problems, such as terrible itching and bruising, uh, all kinds of, of serious, serious Uh, physical problems that make life extremely difficult to enjoy. Um, So the first choice she realized is that she could let herself die, and she would be made comfortable by the facility that I'm in uh, with no help, uh, and that was as liberating as it could possibly be. The second choice was to continue living uh, and try to live at home when she was released. Or the third uh, I had already discovered that the social worker was trying to get her on Medicaid. She certainly qualified. Um, and what happens with Medicaid is that your uh, Social Security gets passed over to, except for I think twenty-five or thirty-five dollars, to the facility, to the state, which offsets the cost of keeping you in this unit. Uh, and she would now have three choices. And I said, and one of the things I'd like to suggest. Uh, is that I call in the psychiatrist, and maybe we can give you a little antidepressant, uh, not because you have an illness, but because sometimes, maybe three times in ten, uh, these things really do create an upper effect, a kind of a, a, uh, a brighter outlook on things. Uh, and we set off. I left her in that state of mind where she was a different person. She owned her life. She was thinking through and making decisions, and I saw her uh, this week again, uh, I'm sorry, last week, uh, and, and uh, she was holding her own, and she had decided she was not ready to die, but she realized that was an option at any point in which, if she was terribly unhappy, she could do this. So, what could a good therapist do? Well, what any good human being can do with people who are in distress, listen, understand, not judge. Ask questions that the individual who is in a box or in a situation and doesn't own it yet can help them own the situation and make different choices. So I think that's enough. I've done about a little more than 30 minutes. Uh, I enjoy this. I don't know if I'm going to do any more shows. It's been a month since my last show. Um, I do these shows, or I have been doing them, again, uh, to get uh, uh, a recognition, to uh, connect with other people, uh, probably not still on some level to show how smart I am and what a good psychologist I am. But I feel that less and less, and more and more I feel I've said what I wanted to say over and over again, usually putting it in, in theoretical rather than more personal terms. Uh, and I enjoyed tonight because I felt it was more personal on my behalf about me and about specific people that I've been working with. And so if I can think of some more really interesting and good stories over the next weeks or a month or whatever, I will come back on the air. I will leave myself this option. Um, I see, I don't think anybody is listening at this moment. But if anybody wishes to uh, reach me, uh, they can reach me uh, at uh, Larry L A R R Y P S Y D O C, at gmail.com, or they can uh, upload a message on my website, um, which is uh, storieswelivebyafterblogtalkradio dot com forward slash. So I'm going to give this about 30, 40 more seconds. If anybody is listening and wants to call, wants to dance for a little while with me, I always enjoy that. If not, I'm going to end the episode. I have a really nice chocolate nut loaf with a cup of tea and a half a spoon of honey in it. Good honey. I have learned that all honeys are not the same. Okay, folks, that's the end of the show. Good night, good luck, take care.